You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the voice of books for National Public Radio. His newest novel is Song of Slaves in the Desert, now out in trade paperback. His newest collection of essays is A Trance After Breakfast. His newest ebook is Paradise or Eat Your Face, containing three wonderful novellas. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Always a pleasure, Rick. We have today three books which span... Uh, the full breadth, I think, of the science fiction genre from a novel that many people would not believe is science fiction to a novel that is absolutely, uh, without question, science fiction, and one that's kind of in between. Uh, Let me guess. <laughs> I've read all three, and I'm not sure which you mean. <laughs> well... Uh, which end of the spectrum would you care to start at? Uh, well, I mean, it, it seems to me that the Ruth Ozeki is probably the one that you're referring to when you say wouldn't really people wouldn't classify it as science fiction. Is that right? Exactly. I wouldn't have guessed it was science fiction, and like many people, when I look at this book that says a tale for the time being, it has this kind of uh, picture of a Japanese little girl on it. We hear kind of flip to the dust jacket and read the little plot summary that says it involves finding a diary washed up on the shore by a young Japanese girl. And you think, well, the, the time being, this is a tale for the interim, and it's going to be have this kind of lax, uh, daisical maybe pacing. But that's far from the case. The time being is, in fact, a human being, and it's a being who exists in time. And right. from the very get-go, from the first two sentences of this book, you get this voice of this character now, and it is absolutely riveting, and it's really hard to stop reading. Yeah, she's uh, this suicidal 16-year-old Japanese schoolgirl. Her name is Naoko, but her nickname is Nao, spelled N-A-O. So she is in the moment, <laughs> except that uh, we don't know whether she's alive or dead, and the woman who finds the diary washed up on the shore of this island in British Columbia by the tsunami, uh, aftermath of the tsunami, um, gives no indication whether she's alive or dead. She, she professes that she wants to commit suicide. Her father's already suicidal. And she uh, puts that off so she can write a, a biography of her, her uh, Buddhist philosophical non-grandmother. Uh, is it grandmother, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we don't know whether she's still alive. And so it's a kind of mystery story at the same time, because the person who finds the diary, who happens to be called Ruth Ozeki, <laughs> who is the writer, um, is desperately trying to get most of it translated so she can find out what's happened to this girl. And we still won't know what's happened to her because there's this time delay. It's really fascinating. Uh, art, temporal archaeological dig in a way. Well, I, I, as I said, the 
uh, Now's voice is just so wonderful to read. Yeah. It's really <clears throat> engaging. Mm-hmm. And and Ruth's voice as well is really interesting. And I think this is uh, a really great conceit that makes you think. It's one of these books that are many moments in this book when it really makes you think about reading and what it is to be a reader. Mm-hmm. And there's one moment in particular I'm thinking that comes about, I think about 80, 50 to 80 pages in, mm-hmm. where you just have this kind of revelation of uh what it means to be a reader of a book, what it means to be somebody who writes a book, and what that kind of relationship is. And it's I think it's really stunning. And it's also fun and compelling because like Ruth, the author who's reading Now's uh, diary, we want to find out what happened to Now just as much as Ruth does. And right. it really keeps the pages turning. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting uh, pace that she sets up because, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's much more uh, like um, stately Mozart than it is uh, Night on Bald Mountain. <laughs> but you keep, you do keep reading. You read, 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 trying to find out what's happening. And then there are also uh, Japanese uh, aphorisms and passages which Ozeki translates, puts in footnotes, and those are fascinating. They slow things down, but in a wonderfully philosophical way. Um, and and there are Buddhist texts which she translates. I mean, it's it's a many layered novel, uh, both as a piece of time and and as a piece of literature. It's really rather affecting, I think. Uh, I thought it was really uh, uh, an interesting and. Uh, uh, an experience that's both emotional, you, you get involved with the characters, you also get involved with the aesthetics of the work, and she makes you think about that in a way that's really, I thought, engaging. Yes. There are some great appendices that, um, true to the, the story and the text, zip you forward in time and backward in time, so you're turning to the end of the book, or maybe not, depending on your inclination. The footnotes are really fun and interesting, and there are so many Japanese, Japanese aphorisms in there, and it's interesting to note which she translates, some she doesn't. And, and, I, <laughs> and you know, you know, and what's really interesting, and this doesn't happen a lot if you read a lot, which is, I mean, I'd never read anything of hers before this, and it's one of those books that makes you want to read anything and everything this woman is going to write from now on. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think I really like the, her sense of herself in this book. The character of Ruth Ozeki, the writer, is really interesting. And her husband uh, is really interesting. And apparently this is exactly these uh, really fascinating projects that her husband is working on, the neo-eocene a uh, forest that he's planting on on Vancouver, some Vancouver Island, is, is this is something that he's really working on. Yeah. So the the echoes between reality and what's real and what's not, it, it's all very involving and fascinating. I thought. Yeah, and I, I mean the whole enterprise is as eccentric as the novelist Ozeki in the novel and her husband. But it's, it gives you the whole world. It's just a fascinating world and that uh, extends from that tiny little island all the way out to Japan and that huge island and I guess you'd say this whole island of time we live on. Right. And I think that she does. There's some absolutely wonderful reveals in here that are charming and sweet. It, it's really there's some moments in here that looks like things might be kind of grim, 
And I think that the way she plays with your expectations and meets and defeats and greets them are, are it's really a superbly constructed novel that doesn't call attention to its superb construction. So everybody should go out and read it. I, I think so, yeah. I don't, it's a book that is largely about reading, and there definitely is a, an aspect of uh, science fiction in it, but we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Next in our path towards uh, genre purity, shall we say? Yes. <laughs> uh, we come to Odds Against Tomorrow. It's, this is the second novel by Nathaniel Rich. Uh, this is, his first novel was called The Mare's Tongue, and that was a really fascinating novel. It had a, a chunk of Borges in it. It had this weird kind of, uh, I would say, it would probably be identified as magic realism where he explores this whole terrain um, that's on the border of Italy and France, and it's real, it's unreal. And this time around, his he's it starts... the. the our first novel started in New York. This time he starts there and stays there. Yeah. And I think it's a, this reminds me very much of a novel that you might have, uh, we might have gotten out of Stanislaw M. had he still been alive. Well, it's certainly light years away from his first one. And it's, a, I mean, it suggests that this, I mean, this is a writer whose every book you're going to want to pick up. I, again, I would from agree. From now on. Yeah. Um, it's about this, uh, Midwestern mathematician named Mitchell Zukor, who has this wild talent for uh, envisioning worst-case scenarios about climate and ecology. Uh, you know, lies awake at night making projections about super hurricanes and the you know what will happen to uh, the Western world if that uh, brooding volcano underneath Yellowstone erupts, which it's bound to mathematically bound to uh, sometime in the next million years. And uh, and then he graduates from college, and he's hired by this conniving New York entrepreneur who begins to make money from Zucker's predictions. He sells, you remember, he sells them to corporations. You know, what corporation doesn't want to think it's prepared for the worst case? So, um, and then uh, his worst nightmare or best nightmare comes true. This huge hurricane hits New York, bigger than maybe five times bigger than Hurricane Sandy. And uh, we get a description of, you know, a flooded New York that is absolutely an extravaganza. Um, and and uh, we float along for a long time. It's like it's really like being in a, the best science fiction movie we've seen in a while. I, I would agree. I really love the... Zucker's voice is so enchanting, and, and really, I really like his kind of... Uh, Pragmat, the pragmatic feel of his voice and the description of New York submerged is chilling. It's beautiful. It's it's everything you want uh, something to be in a book like this. This is um, one of those uh, areas where uh, reading and books really show their power to evoke big images, big screen images, stuff that would be you know tough to to pull off in a movie. But as you read this in the book, it's just really stunning and puts you right there. Yeah, and his, uh, I mean, you say his voice is very well done. Technically, it starts out in the voice of one of his classmates at the University of Chicago, and then it, kind of like the way, actually, I think he must have borrowed this opening from Madame Bovary, because the narrator of Bovary is that classmate of, of uh, 
Emma's husband, and then we just the story just opens up and opens up, and and this way this novel opens up in the same way. But the, as you say, the voice is really distinctive. I, I love this vision that Zucker has about the end. He says, uh, you know, human beings decay. Not even the universe will be spared. It too was going senile. Space was cooling, and one by one, all the stars in the sky would go out. Everything was disintegrating. Yet here was man, the poor Schlemiel, running around with his glue and tape. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, uh, his first book was uh, dealt uh, quite a bit with the work of a guy named uh, Italo Svevo. Oh, yeah, sure. And uh, James Joyce's best English student. Yeah. And Svevo wrote a book that's one of my all-time favorites called Confessions of Zeno. Oh, yes. And Zeno concludes, and you just pointed this out to me, Zeno concludes with a very similar vision mm-hmm. in, right. in which yeah, uh, yeah. at the very end it says, you know, the last man on earth will crawl to, will take the biggest explosive that has ever been in, invented, crawl to the center of the earth and detonate that explosive. And it, that same kind of musing uh, voice. And, and I think that that's another uh, a touchstone for Rich, who is uh, certainly an author who is very hard to, to pin down, and I can't wait to see where the heck he goes next. You know, apparently he lives in New Orleans now, so who knows what he's cooking. <laughs> but he certainly has done more than put this together with glue and tape, I'll have to say. No, no, this is uh, the way from the, from the voice, the plotting, and the really tight you know, writing here, there's not a word wasted. This is a, a really clean and crisp uh, book to read. Yeah, and there's a love story of sorts in the <laughs> middle of it, too. Well, you can't go wrong with Odds Against Tomorrow. Now, uh, for our third book, we're going to go straight over to a book that can be, I think, uh, well-described as All Monsters All the Time. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, you can't ask for a better description of a book that I'm going to like. And Warren Fay delivers, and I think in Pandemonium, this is the sequel to Fragment. Which is the, a, a, a wonderful extra, because you, you really should read Fragment before you read this one, although this one is perfectly clear without Fragment. Um, I mean, just to have those two books on your reading shelf at night, You'll never get to sleep. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, and I think that uh, one of the things that I love most about Warren Fay is that he really understands that monsters, that the killing machine kind of monster is really basically, in the end, pretty uninteresting. And what Fay does absolutely uh, stunningly well is to create monsters that are part of an ecology, monsters that reflect a, a level of characterization that you don't find with most human characters in many novels. And I think that's the the real strong point of uh, Pandemonium. Well, it's, um, it's an amazing world that he creates um, under the uh, Ural Mountains in Russia, where this mega billionaire has uh, somehow uh, gotten hold of this, uh, the makings of the ecosystem from this isolated island in the Pacific, which is the setting of this, of his fragment that came out in 2009. And he has built it in, in this lake, or set it all free in this lake, in this underground city. Uh, 
and and things get a little out of hand. That's always the problem, isn't it? And and that's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the stuff in this, in this. Uh, I, I mean, zoo. I guess he would call it a zoo, but it does soon get out of hand. I mean, he bring, has to bring in this team of American biologists whom he hopes he can. Uh, help him find a solution to the outbreak of these creatures, which he had thought were just going to be kind of uh, very interesting to have around. But it's got these uh, fire-bombing airborne jellyfish and killer mollusks. And my favorite are the carnivorous, murderous ants. <laughs> and and then there are these tiger-sized monster crickets and they're all trying to break through between this divide between their underground quarters and where human beings in this underground city are supposed to live. Um, I mean, it is absolutely mad, and yet there's a wonderful logic to it. Um, it's uh, I mean, What would you compare it to? Kind of the most anti-benign Jurassic, Jurassic Park that you could imagine. <laughs> right. I, I think there's the um, comparisons to Jurassic Park are there, but I think that this guy... Uh, gives his monsters and his whole setting, everything about it, to me, has a lot more character in it. There's so much more going on, and it's so much more prickly. And it's he's absolutely vicious when it comes to, like, killing off people. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things I think that I really liked about uh, Fragment, and, and he continues that in this book. Nobody's safe, and there's a the level of, you know, danger here is is constant, and... Uh, pretty terrorizing. Yeah, it's it's uh, the book is quite 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 a fright, I have to say. And it'll it'll keep you up. It'll keep you awake. And, and I think it'll keep you awake even after you finish, be, because the in terms of world building, I think that's one of the the things that he does so well, mm-hmm. uh, right. better than many science fiction writers. Even though he's building this world within our world. And that involves two layers of keeping our world kind of safe from everything else and keeping the portals between the two safe. So we have to have that kind of aspect of world building. And then the ecosystems he creates, which I think are seem very meticulously researched and, and have the real true feel of hard science fiction. Yeah, absolutely. This is... This is an ecosystem that was completely isolated from the rest of the world for a couple of billion years, and uh, things don't develop very, very cheerfully. <laughs> no, no, and, and one of the things too is that we do have some of these monsters who are intelligent, who speak, who participate in the action, and I think that uh, the way he's he's working this out, I really like his stuff. I think that he puts, you know. Uh, creates a kind of a genre of hard bio-science fiction, mm-hmm. yeah. which hasn't been done, I think, very often, and I don't think ever quite this well with this I much think detail. You know, you're right. It's it's really uh, Hal Clement-like in its own way. Exactly, yeah, Hal Clement-needle. And, uh, oh, boy, I'm trying to remember the other one, his, his other famous one, boy. And, of course, there's a little bit of, of Dune in here, as there is in any kind of world building. But I think that he's much more into the monsters. If you're looking for monsters, you are absolutely not going to find a better selection than you are in That's, that's very true. It's <laughs> kind of like the, the, 
Kmart of Monsters. No, no, no. This, this, <clears throat> this is the uh, May Company of Monsters. This Abercrombie, is... <laughs> Abercrombie and Fitch of Monsters. Absolutely. <laughs> Pandemonium and its uh, prequel, so to speak, the first book in the series, A Fragment by Warren Fahey. Definitely a must read if you're a monster hound. And our books today, we spoke about A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth, Ruth Ozeki, a fabulous novel about readers reading and beautiful book. A beautiful book. Odds Against Tomorrow by Nathaniel Rich. Uh, a brilliant guy. A brilliant book about a brilliant guy. And Pandemonium by Warren Fahey. I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.